She has written or edited seven books, including The Bonds of Womanhood, Women's Sphere in New England, 1780 to 1835, The Grounding of Modern Feminism, A Woman Making History, Mary Ritter Beard Through Her Letters, and Public Vows, A History of Marriage and the Nation. Since writing Public Vows, she led the writing of the historian's amicus briefs on the same-sex marriage question in numerous states and has testified as an expert witness in federal court several times. Both the historian's amicus brief and her book, Public Vows, were cited in, two, in the 2015 U.S. Supreme Court decision finding a constitutional justification for same-sex couples' equal marriage rights. Now, I think because Nancy is an expert on gender and she's here in North Carolina, we should prevail upon her <laughs> to offer some instruction to our governor and our legislature. Maybe, maybe Nancy, are you up for that? Maybe that would help. I doubt that it would help, though. She was the director of the Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History at Harvard University from 2010 through 2012, and the Cornell Distinguished Visiting Professor in the Humanities at Wellesley College in the fall of 2012. She has served on the executive board of the Organization of American Historians, the National Council of American Studies of the American Studies Association, the Society of American Historians, and numerous editorial boards of journals and reference works such as the American National Biography and Notable American Women. In 2008, she was elected a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and she is currently the president of the, president of the Organization of American Historians. Now at the center this year, Nancy is working on a project entitled World Venturing, Cosmopolitan Self-Invention After the Great War a study of young Americans who, by staying mobile rather than settling in Paris after World War I, managed to avoid the disillusionment of the lost generation and win fame, support themselves, and influence others through their writing. This afternoon, Nancy will tell us about them in her presentation, Accidental Internationalists, American Journalists Abroad Between the World Wars. After her talk, there'll be time for some questions, and after that, there'll be some time to drink some wine. So ladies and gentlemen, let's bring Nancy Cott up to the microphone, and Nancy, tell us about those post-World War I people who managed not to get lost. Thank you very much, Richard. And before I begin, I want to thank all of you for braving this um, weather, which is not the way it should be on the 5th of May, uh, and not, not anywhere, really, certainly not in Durham. Um, and I also want to thank all the staff at the center who have made this semester a really ideal time to write. Um, especially the library staff who've been so marvelously helpful, and my fellow fellows who are here for making it such an interesting place to be, whether writing or not. Now, I do want to tell you some general overview of, um, of the reasoning behind my current project. And I'll start with this ship. It took six days to cross the Atlantic on a fast boat in the early 20s. And the trip could be cheap if you didn't care about comfort. 
Neither John Gunther, nor Dorothy Thompson, nor James Vincent Sheehan had firm plans in mind when embarking then. All of them, those three, left from New York, though none of them was from there. They all hailed from farther west in the heartland. All were young, their adult plans undecided. Each of them wanted to write and thought that Europe would be the place to do it. The post-World War I exchange rate meant that American dollars stretched much farther in France or Germany or Austria than at home. In their desires to go, the imagined romance of the old world played a big part since all of them were steeped in European literature. But the immediate provocation for each of them was a, a love affair turned sour. Gunther's would-be girlfriend was heartlessly indifferent. Thompson had fallen, unluckily, in love with a married man. And the object of Sheehan's college passion had left him. The same dilemma was true for Raina Rafelson when she crossed not the Atlantic, but the Pacific. Uh, her marriage to her college sweetheart had ended in divorce. Each of these four individuals felt a need to get away, really away, across an ocean. That was it. The move was that indeterminate. None of them had money to speak of. They all needed to find work that would pay enough to live on. All left the United States with their intentions unformed, yet with journalism in mind as a fallback. Dorothy Thompson reflected much later about her motives. I quote her, journalism was only a means to an end. The end was to see, to learn, if possible, to be, end quote. If each one was asserting independence by seeking adventure and polish abroad, all came to take responsibility for themselves during the pursuit. Each of them turned the ocean crossing into a life focused on events and politics outside the United States. I'm intrigued by the phenomenon these four young Americans of the 20s exemplified. It hasn't been generally recognized that a significant fragment of their generation embraced a broad field of international possibility as they took charge of their lives. This is intriguing because, for one, it cuts across the common characterization of American outlooks on the world as isolationist and parochial in that decade. Secondly, it cuts across the common characterizations of the 1920s younger generation as rebelling in trivial ways only. The stereotype of flaming youth in the roaring 20s has them sitting on flagpoles, swallowing goldfish, drinking forbidden booze out of hip flasks, finding role models in the movies, and not much more. If you have a mental image of youth in that decade, chances are good that you envision jazz babies, drinking bathtub gin, shocking their elders, having a wild time, though to no good end. That would probably have come from F. Scott Fitzgerald novels or stories. Or you may be influenced by Ernest Hemingway novels and see young Americans of the 20s in Spain, France, or Italy, wounded in body and spirit by the World War, carelessly hedonistic as a result. 
Hoping to get beyond these stereotyped characters, I began to read biographies and autobiographies and memoirs of individuals who were born at the cusp of the 20th century, just before and after 1900, so who were in their 20s in the 1920s. I was surprised to find that a great many of them spent significant time outside the United States during their youth and that their time in foreign places determined the subsequent shape of their lives. How common was this, I wondered. I conducted a little statistical inquiry using the reference work called Notable American Women, since I've always been particularly interested in the women, and I looked at all those who were born between 1896 and 1908 to see how many of them resided abroad during their youth in the 1920s or early 30s. I was looking for significant travels or residence, not summer visits, not, not tourism at all, because there was a lot of tourism in the 20s too. Um, I was looking for a stay or continuous traveling for at least a year and uh, preferably longer. And I found that an astonishing proportion of those in that birth cohort did reside outside the US for a significant time often far longer than a year or two, 36% of them. So then I wanted to see about the men, so I consulted a larger reference work called American National Biography, which includes men and women accomplished in all fields. And I, in a sample, a random sample of a thousand names of that birth cohort, um, I found not as high a proportion, but uh, quite high nonetheless, almost a quarter of this sample of men and women spent significant time in a foreign location during their young adulthood. Now, this evidence has its shortcomings. If you are interested in average Americans, these are not average Americans by definition. They are people of accomplishment. Uh, but they are, by the same token, those who would be more likely to have an impact on their society. And a quarter or a third of them, let's say, among those born around the turn of the century did sojourn lengthily outside the US during the shaping years of their young adulthood. And typically, they went with personal or educational or occupational aims. Only rarely were these people reformers or campaigners for a cause. And I think this absence of a cause is worth noticing. Uh, for an activist or a campaigner or a reformer of some sort to travel outside the U.S. to meet others in that same cause um, is not at all unprecedented. It's, it had often been done from the 19th century on. What was distinctive about these 1920s travelers in their youth was their unfixedness of motive. Now, I'm not speaking of the so-called American expats. This is a well-worn account, those who ventured out, and soon returned chastened to native shores. There is a stereotype of these so-called expatriates, artistic types, often if not mainly writers, who went abroad to escape the boosterism and the babbitry of their own America and then hung out in various Montparnasse cafes or alternatively on the Riviera, wasting their youth in drink, sex, and hijinks until the better thinking ones of them recognized they should have more serious aims and circled back to the United States to begin on their meaningful work. Certainly, some individuals did take that circular route. 
Uh, but their writings have had outsized influence in shaping later understanding of the era, so outsized, I think, as to hide the story of what was likely a larger cohort of young Americans who were aiming more at self-invention than at exile. The ones who interest me left the United States with indeterminate aims and allowed their foreign experience to shape their lives. For some, traveling and residing abroad was a kind of intuitively grasped mode of advancement, rather like American business leaders placing their products internationally in that period. They sought a global market for their talents. But, uh, whether their field was music or anthropology, physics or sculpture, sex or photography, voodoo or housing, and I pick all those because there are examples for each, these young adults found reason to explore perspectives outside the United States. And their forays meant that international interchange then shaped cultural innovations, political movements, and knowledge production in the decades between the wars. The Great War, as World War I was known then, was a crucial impetus to their going. It was a world-changing catastrophe, but the war also unleashed new possibilities for fortunate Americans who came of age just afterward. The war's carnage had reached previously unimaginable proportions, and both its destructiveness and its reshaping of the globe shadowed their young lives. But the post-war younger generation did not generally feel it was their war. No, they blamed their parents' generation, they blamed their parents' morality for bringing it about, and often voiced that argument in defending themselves when they were accused of wayward behavior. For instance, um, in a play that was on the stage in both London and New York in the mid-20s, a grown son responds to his father's accusation about his terrible behavior, um, saying, I quote, let me tell you, Dad, once for all, we mean to live by our own light, not by yours. Your generation has reduced Europe to a shambles. Before you become an accusing angel, kindly remember you're in the dock, your morals, your politics, your religions, they're all in the dust heap, end quote. Few, in fact, of this post-war generation, those who matured, who were in their 20s and the 20s, um, had fought. It happens that Ernest Hemingway who was born in 1899, and Malcolm Cowley, born in 1898, thus squarely in the generation I'm interested in. They became two of the most influential American chroniclers of their generation, and they were exceptions to this, to this general rule uh, in that both of them volunteered as teenagers to be ambulance drivers or uh, other volunteer participants in the European war. So they experienced the European front. But most of that age group did not have the war in their own experience. They were instead successors to the mourned dead. They were poised to replace the hundreds of thousands crushed on the battlefield. And this generational position put a premium on their youthful initiatives. 
As a close observer of the Americans, he commented in the mid-30s, I quote him, after the war, an emphasis was placed on the young simply because they were young. It has probably never been equaled in the history of the world, end quote. Now today, it's just a commonplace that the fast pace of change causes a generation gap, a word that, by the way, was coined not until the 40s. Um, nowadays, marketers and pundits speak very easily of the baby boomers, then Generation X, then millennials. Now it's, I think, the aughts. Um, on the assumption that each of these quickly succeeding generations has a distinctive set of habits and preferences. But that idea of generational distinctiveness and outlook was a sociological novelty in the 20s. First theorized then to accommodate the reality that young people and their parents looked at the world in very different ways. And the result was mutual incomprehension. Subjectively, the younger generation in the 20s faced their elders across an abyss. Generational location had never mattered quite so much. The older and younger generations inhabited the same world. They were contemporaries in that sense. They were alive at the same time, but their understandings of the world diverged so markedly that it seemed they lived in different eras. Many in the younger generation at that time were rethinking relationships between self and world, between men and women, between peoples and political systems. For them, immersing oneself in world politics and peoples became a mode of self-fashioning, a distinctive route to self-determination. They were not expatriates. They did not renounce US citizenship, and as American citizens, they reaped benefits from their country's neutrality in foreign policy. American national belonging was a, a valuable trait, but just as important, they were open to cosmopolitan influences. At the time, each of these individuals in whom I'm interested was seeking a life plan, but if they're viewed together, they enacted a generational pattern that counters historical assumptions about Americans' parochialism between the two world, pardon me, two world wars. Their individualist sort of internationalism came about rather accidentally, and it was enabled by their modern world. Improved efficiency and speed and transportation and communication had made the world seem smaller. It was fairly easy for them to travel and live outside the United States to return and then depart again. And Americans had particular advantages. Their country had shown its mettle in the Allied victory in the war. Yet the United States had escaped the massive losses of young men and the tattered economies that resulted in Europe. The relative prosperity and stability of the United States stood in envi enviable contrast to much of the rest of the post-war world in the 20s. US industry and business were driving capital and commerce around the world, and American popular culture and technical know-how were gaining global currency. Compared to the pe period before the World War, the United States was really now a major player on the global stage. Yet, if we compare this interwar period to want the one after World War II, 
these Amer young Americans' relations to other nations and politics were not so much predetermined by a momentous competition of their nation with communism. Things were more flexible and different global possibilities could be entertained. Restive young people with, with their sights raised by their nation's position of global advantage felt entitled to range the world. If they had some education and confidence in their own talents and were responsible only for themselves, not for other family members, they could take the risk of seeking self-support beyond American shores. Um, having the ballast of US citizenship, they were incomparably more secure than stateless migrants and refugees also afloat in the world war's wake. Now, I would say that in enabling the international mobility of these young people, the press was the single most important institution. The four I mentioned uh, at the outset um, all saw journalism as their fallback for supporting themselves. Why would it be journalism? Well, first of all, they lived in a world of print. And all four of these people wanted to be part of that world. The printed word reigned over contemporary information and culture. Books informed their imaginations and inspired their desires, as was true for most of their age group who had the advantage of a high school uh, education, or especially if the ones who pursued a literary bent in college. These four all read voraciously as they were growing up ransacking public library shelves. And it was exciting for them to imagine their own words being read. In that generation, those who wanted to write were not few, but very many. I noticed that Amelia Earhart, uh, when she was at an, in a job interview in the 1920s, just a few years before she became an aviator, when asked what she wanted to do, she said she wanted to write. Um, writing held out the promise of reach and influence, and journalism was a beginning. It was the obvious beginning. A lowly reporter's job on a newspaper could pave the way to more serious and original writing. And so for anyone with words as a coin and trade, newspaper reporting seemed obvious. No particular credentials were required, except facile literacy and maybe some ambition. A couple of years of high school might suffice as preparation. That was true for Ben Hecht, who later wrote the iconic play and screenplay, The Front Page. Um, as one observer noticed, a quote, almost everyone in the newspaper business simply wormed their way in, unquote. And new reporters met gritty conditions, low pay, little glamour, but for the young who welcomed novelty and liked to write, these jobs were appealing. Newspaper reporting promised mobility, promised spectacle, possibly fame. It was a lucky break field. It opened doors for creative talent, and contacts made on the job could provide stepping stones to greater things. Plus, for these young people who were so steeped in print, reporting for a newspaper meant to them having a hand in forming the public mind. 
more surely than any other single genre newspapers constructed the public sphere. The phenomenal array of newspapers in the United States made a job hunt easier. Newspapers were legion. No city of even medium size was without a daily paper, and most had several morning and evening dailies. In the 20s, the literacy of the American public hit a new high, readership ballooned. The aggregate circulation of all daily papers in 1919 was 10 million more than the number of American households. And besides dailies, there were plenty of weeklies, bi-weeklies, monthlies too. In the 20s, new print forms took hold, tabloids, photojournalism by the 30s, glossy, illustrated magazines, pulp magazines, niche magazines, bestseller lists and commercial book clubs, all, all of these took hold during the interwar decades. And those who worked in print media, not only reporters, but publishers, photographers, editors, foreign correspondents, columnists, essayists, and of course, authors of books of fiction and nonfiction, all these writers found more ready outlets for their creations than in decades before, and less competition from other media than would be true later when radio and then TV began to supersede. It wasn't until the late 1930s, really around 1938, that radio or newsreels began to compete seriously with print for news purposes. Now, local and national reporting were always the mainstays of American newspapers, but reporting that spanned continents and oceans became the norm in the 1920s. Advancing modes of communication had made that possible. First, there was the telegraph, undersea cables, soon the telephone, wireless dispatches, airplane, printer telegraph, radio telephone, teletype, shortwave, teletypesetter. The World War had shown that places geographically far apart were interconnected. Obscure events halfway around the globe might soon affect one's ordinary life. The need to know was borderless. And press itself speeding around the world fostered a sense of the international. The world was one, for better or worse. So local knowledge would no longer suffice. The public wanted to be in the know, in the phrase of the day, that meant being up to date, and it meant seeing beyond local horizons. It, it wasn't irrational for young people like the four I mentioned to imagine supporting themselves in a foreign locale by writing news and views for Americans at home. Leading American newspapers had established foreign bureaus in the relevant capital cities during the World War, and after the armistice, rather than dismantling those foreign bureaus, American newspapers expanded the numbers of them they had. So the presence of American newspapers in foreign capitals was greater in the 1920s than in any previous time of peace. And foreign news became a regular feature of newspapers and magazines where it had been far rarer before the war. So the more that Americans became interested in learning what was going on in the world, and they did increasingly as the 20s led to the 30s, the more that foreign witnessing could become a paying occupation. This is why journalism became the root of choice for many young Americans abroad, including quite a 
a lot of them, who weren't really intending literary lives per se, but knew they could put words and sentences together and thought they might get paid for doing it. Some failed, of course, some just didn't stick with it. But for those who persisted, writing internationally could become a lifelong habit. And I find these ones of the um, 20s generation who shaped themselves abroad, some of the most fascinating and peripatetic if they were journalists. I could have told you about four other individuals of this generation, say photographers Bernice Abbott and Elizabeth Miller, or impresario Donald Frieda, publisher Cass Canfield, dress designer Elizabeth Hawes, all of whom found their metiers abroad when they were there in their 20s. But I'm going to stick with the journalists, and so I want to just give you very brief overviews about the four I introduced when I began. They didn't know one another when they left home, but their lives became entwined in foreign sites. Sheehan uh, was born in 1899. His full name was James Vincent Sheehan. Everybody called him Jimmy, but he was known, his published, publishing name was Vincent. He was born in 1899 in a small Illinois town, and his youthful search for self-definition led him far from that small town, first to Chicago and New York, and then to Paris, Geneva, Rome, Berlin, London, Morocco, Persia, Palestine, China, and Russia, all before he was 30. His journey began when he left the University of Chicago in the middle of his senior year, never graduating. He moved to Greenwich Village and picked up a job on the New York Daily News, the nation's first, and at that time only, tabloid. But he stayed only briefly. He soon left for France, where with fortunate timing and finesse, he did know three foreign languages quite well. He became a foreign correspondent for the Chicago Tribune, the best-selling paper in Chicago. As he trotted around Europe, he always managed to arrive where the action was. He witnessed the early rise of Mussolini's black shirts, the post-Versailles conflicts between France and Weimar Germany over reparations, dictator Primo de Rivera's rule of Spain, and the League of Nations' ineffectuality in addressing conflicts among the great powers. During the Rif Rebellion in North Africa, he made two life-endangering treks behind Spanish army lines and then French army lines for a face-to-face -face interview with the anti-colonial leader of the Rifians. This reportorial daring gave him malaria and, in fact, almost killed him, but it also made his reputation in the United States and consolidated his own anti-imperialist politics. A subsequent trip of his to Persia to witness the new Shah's coronation brought him to the British legation there in Tehran and made him lifelong friends in the Bloomsbury Circle in London. Even more dramatic in Sheehan's exploration of contending global possibilities was his involvement in China in 1927 where he witnessed the desperate last days of the left wing of the nationalist revolution being attempted. A trip to Palestine in 1929 then plunged him into death-dealing riots between Arabs and Zionists. Dispassionate, hard-boiled, efficient reporting was not his game by then. 
he had to take sides, and he did so subsequently in his dispatches from the Spanish Civil War and from Austria during Hitler's Anschluss. His artful retracing of his 1920s path in a memoir that he called Personal History, meaning his own personal face-to-face um, -face with historical events. This memoir was published in 1935, and it won the National Book Award and made him famous not only among reporters, but among the general public on both sides of the Atlantic. It drew accolades from reviewers who saw reflected in his book the mercurial potential and the wrenching choices present for worldly young Americans in the 20s. Now, Sheehan's involvement in China would not have been as shaping an influence had he not met Raina Rafielson in Hankow when he arrived and then followed her to Moscow later. She was from Chicago, a rebellious Jewish daughter who made friends at the University of Illinois, where she attended, with others on the left, including Dorothy Day, the future Catholic activist in whose company she explored Greenwich Village on visits. She was married at an early age to her college sweetheart, Sam Rafielson, who would later write the first talkie, the jazz singer, and she was divorced soon too. She looked for a new path and found it by crossing the Pacific to China, intending to find work there, either in journalism or teaching. But just a few years later, when Vincent Sheehan met her in Hankow, she was working as a publicist, which is a form of journalism, for the left wing of the Guomindang, or Nationalist Party. And she consulted daily with their Soviet advisor, Mikhail Borodin. She was now married, uh, or maybe married anyway, coupled with a rather dour Marxist newspaper man from San Francisco. But she herself was a fun-loving new woman whose flaming red hair and outgoing personality drew people to her. Her political life was derailed when Chiang Kai-shek's policies for the Guomindang crushed the party's left wing, but she traveled to Moscow with her colleagues nonetheless for the 10th anniversary celebration of the Bolshevik Revolution. This was 1927. Splitting headaches and mental lapses began to dog her there. She made light of them, brushing off even her first collapse. But within a week, she was dead of a mysterious brain ailment. Her funeral cortege included her friend, Madame Sun Yat-sen, the widow of the original Guomindang leader of the revolution. And the cortege tracked three miles through the snows of Moscow to the crematorium to see flames consume her bright red coffin. Dorothy Thompson walked all those, quote, weary, icy miles, unquote, for the funeral as she wrote to her husband-to-be, Sinclair Lewis, a novelist. Thompson described Raina Rafielson as, I'm quoting her again, a gay, red-headed girl who had balled her life up inextricably, but was a charming thing, end quote. Uh, she had been introduced to, the two women had been introduced by Vincent Sheehan, who knew Dorothy Thompson, having been introduced to her in Berlin the year before. 
Thompson was in Moscow because of the 10th anniversary. She was there to stay for two months and write a long series on Bolshevik Russia for her newspaper. Few other correspondents in that decade were as determined and disciplined and productive as Thompson was, being a quite singular American woman among many men. She had, as a child, had a spare upbringing. She was the daughter of a, a rather impecunious New York State Methodist minister. She went to Syracuse University tuition free because it was a Methodist institution that offered that for Methodist ministers' children. But she had to work as a waitress and she worked in a candy factory once in the summers uh, because the family was poor. And after graduating, she worked for several years in various white collar employments to help her sister go to college. She was freed of her family obligations in 1920 and then crossed the Atlantic aiming for Russia, which was for her as for many socially conscious young people at the time, the bright light on the horizon. But she landed in London and took up freelance newspaper work first. She intrepidly gained journalistic credibility reporting on the rebellion in Ireland, on Russian refugees living in Paris, and many other stories where she was able to combine pathos with original news. Then, taking the advice of a friendly, seasoned newspaper man, Thompson left Paris, which was crowded with ambitious young Americans, and she uh, went to Vienna, which was in extremely tough shape in 1921. She convinced the Philadelphia Public Ledger, which had a good foreign service, to take on her freelance work, and then produced such a cornucopia of stories of all sorts for them about, from things from coffee houses to politics, that within six months, the Public Ledger made her its regular Vienna correspondent on a salary responsible for all of Central Europe except Germany. Then within a few years, she was promoted to be in charge of Germany as bureau head in Berlin, a really quite a plum assignment. She stayed only a few years. She returned to the United States toward the end of the 20s because she had met and married Sinclair Lewis. But the politics of Germany still compelled her, and she continued to visit, write, and publish, snagging an early interview with Hitler, though misinterpreting his character rather badly. Um, by the mid-30s, and the 30s was a decade when columnists, political columnists, were at their most influential in that decade, she became one of them, appearing three times a week in the New York Herald Tribune, opposite Walter Lippmann, and possibly as influential as he at that time. Her column was syndicated to 150 other newspapers, and her name became a household word. The fourth of my group, John Gunther, became a close friend of Dorothy Thompson's and Vincent Sheehan's, when they were all foreign correspondents in Europe in the 20s. Gunther's early life somewhat resembled Sheehan's. They were both bookish youths who loved to read and wanted to write fiction, and both did, but they made their livings as journalists. 
Gunther graduated from the University of Chicago, having become a proficient book reviewer for the college paper while there and establishing a niche for himself in that city's very lively literary coterie. He did well as a cub reporter at the Chicago Daily News when he graduated, but he dropped the job after two years to go to Europe because of this girlfriend who was so uh, elusive. Um, and in short order, with brilliantly lucky timing, he snagged a position as a roving foreign correspondent for the same paper, the Chicago Daily News, which was the second biggest selling paper in Chicago and the one that had the longer history of, of foreign bureaus producing very good foreign news. Based in Paris, Gunther traveled anywhere and everywhere in the 20s uh, to Cairo, to Vienna, to Bukhara, wherever the paper sent him to report. By 1930, he was head of the paper's foreign bureau in Vienna, and five years later, he was appointed to become head of its London bureau, the most weighty foreign bureau placement in that part of the world. But he didn't stay long. He was stupendously productive as a writer, and he hit the jackpot when he accepted a publisher's challenge to write a book on the ominously changing European situation. This was just around the time he accepted the London position. And in less than a year, he wrote the book published in 1936, Inside Europe, that became a bestseller in its first edition and then changed publishing history by becoming the first book to be published in successive revised editions to remain up to date as Hitler advanced and Europe, European political conditions evolved into war. After that success, he rewrote the book several times. I think the war edition was the latest. He then used the same political, uh, par pardon me, the same formula for political reporting to write a book called Inside Asia, for which he traveled to, I think, 20 countries. Then Inside Latin America, Inside Russia, and finally, after World War II, in 47, he published Inside USA. He published all these books within a dozen years. And the titles became so famous and so linked to him at mid-century that a biographical article was predictably entitled Inside John Gunther. And a famous New Yorker cartoon by Helen Hokinson showed a bookstore browser asking the store owner, quote, isn't it about time that another one of John Gunther's insides came out? <laughs> These characters and others whose lives followed parallel trajectories understood themselves as modern, geographically mobile Americans living in a world of other nations and cultures worth exploring. As journalists abroad, they served as intermediaries between power holders and the public who sought insider knowledge. They became global informants. Working in what are now called the culture industries, they gave the 20th century intelligentsia its transnational form. Their generation laid the groundwork for understandings of news and celebrity that inhabit global culture still. Thank you.